circumcision. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about circumcision. There's no way to understand Romans chapter 2 without understanding how the Jews thought about circumcision 2,000 years ago. So how did the Jews understand circumcision? Well, four points. First, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. They understood, rightly understood, that circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. To be circumcised meant that you were on the inside. You are part of the people of God and that the promises of Abraham apply to you. Number two, circumcision is required for godliness. Circumcision is required for godliness. If anyone wanted to love and worship God, they had to be circumcised. Circumcision was not an option. So if you were uncircumcised, you were thought of as being cut off from God, cut off from the promises that God made to Abraham. You were on the outside. Number three, circumcision is protection from the judgment of God. So it's, it's a sign. It was a sign that you belonged to God. It was an obligation, something that you had to do, and then it was protection. It was protection. Circumcision meant that God is our God. We don't worship the other gods, the foreign gods, the pagan gods in other nations, but we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because we are on God's team, because we are God's people, we are safe from his judgment. God is a God of judgment, and he will judge people. He's going to judge the pagans. He's going to judge the idolaters. He's going to judge the Gentiles. And so they thought of themselves as being safe from the judgment of God because they were circumcised. Number four, circumcision is the basis for judging the Gentiles. Circumcision is the basis for judging the Gentiles. Circumcision meant we are better than you. We are better than you. Uh, David said of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this is the way the Old Testament talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. This is the line. This is the mark. To be circumcised meant you're part of the people of God. Uncircumcised, cut off from the people of God. And it became the basis by which the Jews judged the Gentiles, how they divided the world. And they thought to themselves, the uncircumcised, the uncircumcised Gentiles, they are unclean. They are idolaters. They are under the judgment of God. They're not part of the people of God. And so they would stand, the Jews would stand on a platform looking down at the Gentiles. They called, I think it's interesting that in the Old Testament, and if you look at history, you see that the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. And you shouldn't think of Lassie in your head, not Lassie like your pet dog. You should think of a rat. That would be a, 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 more, a more appropriate way to think about it. They, they called the Gentiles, the Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised rats. They're unclean, they're dirty, they're idolaters. They, they are worshiping false gods where they sacrifice their children, their cannibals. They do detestable things. And so they thought so lowly of the Gentiles. And circumcision was the basis by which they would stand and look down and condemn the Gentiles. And so circumcision over the course of time became their security blanket. How do you know you're right with God? They would say, we, we have circumcision. We are the circumcised people of God. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul is going to pick a fight with them. He's going to make some statements, some claims that are extremely offensive. Uh, he's going to do this on purpose. It's like he's pushing them a little bit just to get them to respond. He is going to take away their security blanket. When I was in high school, I would often have to get up 
pretty early for uh, workouts. We'd have like 6 a.m. workouts for football or uh, basketball or whatever it was. And so my dad would often come into my room and wake me up in, in the morning around 5.30, and he would always be very nice to me, at least at first. And so he'd come in, and he would be very nice. He'd be like, hey, you got to wake up. But then if I didn't get up within a couple of minutes, he would come in, and he would turn the lights on, and he would rip the blanket off of me. He would just pull the blanket off of me. And so I would go from being warm and cozy in the dark to angry and cold in the light. And I hated that. And I was always surprised by how angry I would get when he would turn the lights on and he would rip the blankets off of me. I remember thinking, I love my dad, but every time he did it, I thought, okay, we have to fight now. You know, I, I don't want to punch you, but I, I, I can't let you get away with this. This is so inappropriate to take a warm blanket from someone. It's, it's terrible. And this is what Paul's doing. See, my dad, it was loving for my dad to wake me up, to take away my blanket, to turn on the lights. It was loving for him to do that. In the same way, the Apostle Paul, he's going to the Jews, he's taking away their security blanket. He's turning on the lights. He's saying, you need to look at yourselves in the mirror. You need to understand the condition that you are in. And he does this by making outrageous claims. He is making outrageous claims. And it's hard for us to sense how outrageous, how outrageous these claims are. It's hard for us to sense how offensive these claims are because we're not Jewish. Most of us are not Jewish. But let's try to understand the offense of these claims. Claim number one, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. So think about that. So circumcision, you have the mark that you belong to the people of God, but you do not obey God. That equals uncircumcision. You're cut off from God. Romans 2, 25. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The Jews thought, we are on the inside. We're on God's team. We, we're on the right side of the battle. But Paul says, okay, if you have the mark of circumcision, but you do not keep the law, you do not observe the law, you don't obey the law, you're on the wrong team. You're, you are cut off from God even though you have the mark of circumcision. You're on the wrong team. Claim number two, uncircumcision. So these uncircumcised, quote, rats defiled, un, these Gentiles who don't know God. This is how the Jews thought of them. So uncircumcision plus obedience to God's law equals circumcision. So uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. They have the true mark that they belong to God. Verse 26. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, you should circle that phrase. We'll come back to that phrase. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements... Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Doesn't that count? So if, if you have an uncircumcised rat who doesn't, who doesn't belong to the nation of Israel, but they, they obey God from the heart, won't that count before God as if they were circumcised? I think a helpful way to think about circumcision is that it's like a wedding ring. So if you wear a wedding ring, a, a, a wedding ring is the sign of a covenant, that you've entered into a covenant. Circumcision was the sign of a covenant. So if a, if a married woman, she has a wedding ring on, but that's the sign of the covenant, but she is unfaithful to her husband, She's sleep, she sleeps around with other men, not her husband, what good is the ring? That's the idea. What good is that ring if you're unfaithful? What good is the ring if you're unfaithful to your husband? What husband would say, sure, my wife is sleeping around, but at least she wears a wedding ring. She wears a wedding ring, so it's no big deal. Nobody says that. Or imagine a wife who doesn't wear a wedding ring. Wife, she's married, legitimately married, doesn't wear a wedding ring, but she's totally faithful to her husband. Paul is saying, will not her faithfulness count as a wedding ring? 
doesn't her faithfulness to her, her husband meet, meet the implication or the desire of the ring itself? Isn't the purpose of the ring the promise of covenant faithfulness in marriage? In the same way, circumcision, the circumcision, a good way to think of circumcision, it, is that it was the promise of covenant faithfulness to God. So Paul's saying, listen, if you're circumcised but you are unfaithful to the Lord, God counts you as uncircumcised. He, count, he counts you as cut off from God. This is why he says in verse 25, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's like, it doesn't matter. He's saying the symbol of the covenant does not matter if you do not keep the covenant. Claim number three, uncircumcised law keepers will judge the Jews. Uncircumcised law keepers will judge the Jews. Verse 27, a man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter and circumcision. So he's, say, he's saying, listen, these people that you look, you look down on, you think they're the scum of the earth. If they obey God from the heart, if they're faithful to God, these people are on God's team. They haven't earned their salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the people who keep the law of God, who obey God, who are faithful to God, they're on God's team. And they will stand with Christ and condemn you, Jews, who have the letter of the law and circumcision, but you don't keep it. You don't keep it. So if you think circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is a substitute for covenant faithfulness, you are badly mistaken. This is what he is arguing. He's saying those, those Gentiles who you despise, whom you despise, will judge you, who have the letter of the law and circumcision. So this is shocking. This would have blown their minds. They would have been so angry about this. This is Paul taking away their security blanket, saying you should place no confidence in your flesh. You should place no confidence in your circumcision that you're right with God. Paul is leveling the playing field, saying that Jews need the gospel just as much as the Gentiles. The people who grew up in church need the gospel just as much as people who do not grow up in church. And so the question we need to wrestle with is the question, what were the Jews missing? This is the question I would have had if I was living in Rome, I was a Jewish person living in Rome 2,000 years ago. What were we missing? What were we missing? If, I mean, think about this. If the law, God gave the law to the Jews, and God gave circumcision to the Jews. But if the law and circumcision does not make you right with God, then what does? What does make you right with God? Here are two summary observations for you to consider. Observation number one, the Jews, the Jewish people, they had physical circumcision, but needed true circumcision. So they lacked true circumcision. Observation number two, they had the sign of the covenant, but not the substance of the covenant. They had the sign or the symbol of the covenant, but not the substance of the covenant. And this applies to millions of people today in our country, all across our country. It applies to millions and millions and millions of people. In the New Testament, the signs of the new covenant are baptism and communion. These are the signs of the covenant. In the Old Testament, you have circumcision, you have other signs as well. But circumcision was the, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Baptism and communion are the signs of the new covenant. They are signs, but not the reality. Baptism and community, they're the signs, not the substance. You know, recently I spoke to a uh, Catholic man who hadn't missed church in years. He says, I go to church every week. He's missed only a couple of weeks in, a, in many years. And I said, why do you go to church every week? Why do you go to church? You never miss church. Why do you go to church 
every week. It's good to go to church. So I'm not condemning someone for going to church a lot. I'm just, I was just asking him, why do you go to church every week? And he says, here's, here's his thinking. He says, okay, so on Sunday when I go to church, I take communion. If I miss church, I don't take communion on Sunday. And if I miss communion on Sunday and I die on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. And I think the Apostle Paul would say to this man, you have the sign, but not the substance. You have the symbol of Christ, but you do not have the reality of Christ. You do not have the reality. And this is a struggle that so many people have. So many people, they trust in the externals. They trust in their baptism. They trust in taking communion. They trust in their, their, their record of going to church and being good. We just trust in all of these things, even good things. We can trust in them. But see, baptism and communion, they're just symbols. They're signs that point to the reality of Christ. And if you have, if you have Christ, you have everything. You don't have Christ, you don't have anything. If you don't have Christ, you're totally lost. And so Paul is going to give three contrasts to help them understand the distinction between the sign of the covenant and the substance. And we need to understand the difference between the sign of the covenant and the substance, the symbols of the covenant and the reality of salvation. We need to understand that distinction. So three contrasts this morning. Contrast number one is the letter versus the spirit. The letter versus the spirit. The letter of the law required the people of God to be circumcised. The letter of the law required the people of God to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this was a circumcision that was done with human hands. Human hands can circumcise. Human hands can baptize. Human hands can give communion. And that's good. It's good that God involves us in marking his people. That is a good thing. But what Paul is saying here is that there's a type of circumcision that human hands cannot do. There's a type of work that every person needs to have in their life. This work has to be done, but it can't be done by human hands. You can't do it to yourself. You can't do it to other people. It must be done by God. Colossians 2.11, in him, you were also circumcised. So in Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands. Paul is saying, Paul is saying that people have a need. They have a need inwardly, and hands can't circumcise hearts. Hands can't get to hearts. Hands can't get to souls. I wish we could do that. I wish for my kids or my friends or my neighbors, I wish I could reach inside of people's souls and just turn the lights on and make them Christians. I wish I could do that, but I can't do that, and you can't do that either. Hands cannot get to souls Hands can't get to hearts. And Paul says, if you do not have the circumcision of the heart, then you don't have anything. You're still dead in your sin. We need the circumcision of the heart. Verse 29, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the, la- not the letter. So what they lacked was the spirit of God. They lacked the spirit of God. They had the letter, but they, but they lacked the spirit of God, And if you do not have the Spirit of God, then all you have is yourself. All you have is your flesh. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. There's no problem with the law. No problem. The law is good. The law is good. It's been given to 
the people of God by God himself. There's no problem with the law. But Paul says that the flesh, our sinful nature, weakened the law. This is what he says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's another equation for you. If you, if you haven't noticed, I'm using a lot of equations today. <laughs> so here we go. In the letter of the law. So the letter of the law, you take the letter of the law plus the flesh equals a ladder to climb. This is what our sinful hearts do with the Bible. This is what our sinful hearts do with the truth. That we take the letter of the law, when there's no spirit, we take the letter of the law plus the flesh that equals a ladder to climb. It becomes a list. It becomes something that we do to earn our way to God. There's a famous piece of art that's based on a book from the 6th century. It's called The Ladder of Ascent. The Ladder of Ascent. It was... It was written by a Catholic monk, and there are 30 chapters in the book, 30 virtues. And each one of the virtues is a rung on the ladder. So here's the picture of the artwork. There are 30 rungs on this ladder, and these are monks. Uh, these are people who have devoted themselves entirely to God. And I think this is a helpful picture because this is, this is exactly what we do wrong as human beings. We take the Bible, and we turn the Bible into these virtues. Is the Bible filled with virtues? Absolutely. It's filled with truth. It's filled with righteousness. It's filled with instruction about how we are to live. But what, what we do is we turn them into a, ru a rung on the ladder, and then we climb our way to God. This is, this is how we get to Christ. So if you want to go to the next picture, you see Christ up in the corner, greeting people, welcoming people who have made it to the top of the ladder. So you climbed all the way up, and here's Christ welcoming you welcoming you into his presence. And they understood this is very difficult. So if you want to go to the next slide here, you have the saints who have gone before who are praying for these people. Hey, keep going. It's really hard. Keep going. Keep climbing the ladder. Keep climbing the ladder. Keep climbing the ladder. Now, if you want to go to the next slide, uh, these are the angels in heaven who are observing people as they're climbing the ladder, working their way up to God. And this is a terrifying image because you have demons who are trying to pull you off the ladder. You have, you have people falling off the ladder like you have this guy. He falls off the ladder and he gets eaten like a burrito by that head at the bottom there. I don't know if you see that, but he falls off. And, and it's like, this is terrifying. You have these demons enslaving people, pulling people off. And this is the struggle. This is the story of salvation. And I was reading about this, this picture this week and I thought, how depressing is this? If this is the story of salvation, how depressing could this be? It's up to you. God will help you. God's cheering you on. The saints are praying for you. The angels are watching you. And just keep, keep going. Paul's like, you know what? That's a great plan. Sounds like a great plan. If you can do it, the only problem is that you have to be perfect. You must be perfect, sinless, as righteous as God himself which is a standard that no one could ever meet. This is why Paul says the letter kills. Holding on to the letter of the law as if that is what make, makes you right with God, it kills. You'll never get to God. You won't even make it to the first rung apart from the grace of God. Contrast number two is visible versus invisible. Invisible versus invisible. Verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. The Jewish people were obsessed with the visible sign of circumcision. Why? 
because they did not have eyes to see. They were focused on performance. They were focused on the external behavior. They were focused on the physical aspects of worship, and they ignored the supernatural nature of salvation. They ignored the supernatural nature of worship, and I believe we do the same thing today. This is so common today. This plays out in so many different ways where we just ignore the supernatural nature of salvation. So it plays out many ways. One example. Let me ask you the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? How do you answer that question? It's very common for us to focus in on what we do. Uh, to, to focus in on what we do in salvation. So we, we think to ourselves, you know, I raised my hand. I heard a, uh, a gospel presentation. I raised my hand, and I walked down the aisle, and I filled out the card, and I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I believed the gospel. That's why I'm a Christian. And this subtle lie can creep into our hearts, and this is what we think to ourselves. I made me a Christian. Why are you a Christian? I made me a Christian. I made me a Christian. Now, please don't misunderstand me. A response to the gospel is required. When the gospel goes out, you must respond in order to be saved. You must turn from sin and embrace Christ. Put your trust in Christ alone. But when we believe this lie, when we believe I made me a Christian, well, I raised my hand, I prayed the prayer, I confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, and that's fundamentally what made me a Christian. When we believe that, then what happens when you lower your hand? Okay, so raise my hand, Christian. Lower my hand, not Christian? Is that how it works? This is why people believe you can lose your salvation. They, they believe you can lose your salvation because, see, I made me a Christian. When I prayed the prayer, I made me a Christian. I raised my hand. I filled out the card. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. That's what makes me a Christian. Don't get me wrong. We must respond to the gospel, but at a fundamental level, that is not what makes you a Christian. That is not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The truth from the scriptures is that salvation is supernatural, it is irreversible, and it is permanent. It is supernatural to be a Christian. It is a supernatural change that is irreversible and permanent. Part of the reason circumcision is such a helpful picture is that if you, if you cut your arm, just cut your arm, bandage it up, in six months, your arm is going to be healed, or whatever, maybe 10 weeks, or whatever it is. You're going to be, you're going to be healed as if there was no cut. Like you'll just look at your arm. Maybe you'll have a tiny mark, but it's, it's pretty much the same. But that's not the way it works with circumcision. Like when you get circumcised, it's gone. It's over. It's a permanent mark on your body. This is the way that it works. No turning back. It's gone. And so when God circumcises the heart, it is an irreversible, permanent supernatural change. And this is what they lacked. They did not have circumcised hearts. So what is the invisible, true circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit? What is this? Because this is, this is a description of salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you don't have the circumcision of the heart, you're not a Christian. So what is it? Ezekiel 36. If you have a Bible, you should turn there and mark it. Pay attention to it, because this is a description of what God does in salvation. We believe this is what God does. We turn from sin. This is what God does. Five features, verse 25. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is speaking of forgiveness, that when you become a Christian, you are forgiven. 
there is a real objective forgiveness that God gives. When, when people come to faith in Christ, there's a real objective forgiveness where your sins are taken from you. They're gone. I mean, where is my sin right now? I mean, do you ever think about that question? Where is my sin? Where is it at? It's gone. It's taken from me. God buried it in the depths of the ocean. Micah says he, he took it and he buried my sin in the depths of the ocean. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. It is good to be forgiven, to have our sins removed from us. Feature one is forgiveness, and he accomplishes this through his son Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We're at the cross. He bore our sin and died in our place. There's a real objective forgiveness God gives to his people. Number two, he says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will cleanse you from not only your sins, but from your impurities and all your idols. I've heard people say this dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the years where they say, you know what? I used to live for my job. Like, what did I live for? I lived for my job. I used to live to party. I used to live for girls. I used to live for money. I used to live for, my, for sports. That's what really motivated me. That was my life. But then I became a Christian, and I don't live for those things anymore. Like all of those things have lost their appeal. The party life, all the sexual sin, it doesn't mean that people aren't tempted by it. It just means they've lost their appeal. And I think, why does that happen? It's because God has cleansed them from their idols. That God has done a work in them to cleanse them from their idols. Certainly, it is a battle. It is a war to love and worship God, to obey God, to trust God. It is a battle. It is a supernatural battle but we would never even fight the battle apart from the grace of God. We would never even engage in the battle if it wasn't for God working in our lives. So he cleanses us from all of our impurities and idols. Feature number three, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is an incredible statement about the nature of the problem. What is, what is the fundamental nature of lost people? Some of you here this morning, you're totally lost. You're here in a church, totally lost, totally dead in your sins. What is the fundamental nature of being lost versus being saved? It's not being in a church building. It's not listening to the Bible. What is the fundamental nature? Well, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, lostness is marked by a heart of stone where people, they don't care about the word of God. They can't read the word of God. They, 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 they open up the Bible and they're like, this is so boring and terrible. I don't want anything to do with it. You hear the truths about the greatness and the glory of God. You hear truths about the holiness and righteousness of God. You hear truths about the grace and mercy of God, but it doesn't move you one inch. You don't care. You don't care. Why? because you have a heart of stone. You're dead in your sins. And what God does in salvation is he gives us a new heart. You see this in verse 26? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove, cut away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that cares a heart that loves God's word, a heart that loves God's people, a heart that loves God himself. 
So many people have said, you know, I used to never pay attention to the word of God. I hated going to church. I didn't want anything to do with the things of God. But then they say, all of a sudden, I can't get enough of God's word. All of a sudden, I can't get enough of God's people. I love going to church. I love worshiping God. And I think, I know what happened there. You became a Christian. God took away your dead, hard, stony heart. And he gave you a new heart. A heart that loves God. He cuts out the old heart. He does surgery, heart surgery. Gets rid of this hard-heartedness that we might know God. Verse 27, this is feature number four. I will place my spirit within you. So God, he doesn't just give us a new heart. He puts his spirit, his spirit in his people. I mean, to be a Christian means that God's spirit dwells in us. Isn't that an incredible truth? We have Christ ruling and reigning in heaven. And we have the spirit of Christ in us. I mean, right now, if you're a Christian here this morning, God's spirit dwells in you. You have been forgiven and justified and filled with his Holy Spirit. What an incredible truth. And number five, feature five, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So when God takes out the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, when he puts his spirit in us, he forgives us, cleanses us from our idols, then we're gonna obey God. This is why one of the marks of being a Christian is that you love God and you want to obey him. You want to do what he says. You're not looking for excuses to justify your disobedience. Your heart says, I, always, I want to obey God. I'm not perfect. I want to obey God. What does God say? I want to obey him. Why do we have that? Why do we have that disposition? It's because God is working in us. We were dead and God has made us alive. We were lost and now we, were, we have been found by the grace of God. We were blind, but now we see. This is the substance of salvation. This is the reality of what God does for us in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you notice in you, you say, I love God's word. I'm not perfect. I love God's word. I don't live a perfectly righteous life, but I love obeying God. I love God himself. You should praise God. That should, that should stir up your affections to say, oh God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for making me new. The third contrast is outward versus Godward. Outward versus Godward. See, when, we worship, when the worship of God is based on the letter of the law, when it's based on what's visible, when it's based on the outward and external behavior, what you get, I've been thinking about this phrase all week, what you get is man-centered, people-pleasing death. This is what you get. You get man-centered, people-pleasing death. There's no transformation. There's no life. When everything is focused on the visible, when it's focused on the outward, the external behavior. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. This is all about performance and doing your behavior. They tie up these heavy loads. Here's what you got to do. Here's all the lists of things you need, to, you need to do. Do all these things. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Verse 5. They do everything to be seen by others. They do everything to be seen by others. Then he gives a list. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. A phylactery was a little box that you would stuff the scriptures in. You'd put the scriptures in the box and you'd put it on your head or you'd put it around your neck. 
So God's word was always on your mind and always in your heart. So you'd have these little boxes and you'd walk around. But Jesus says, you guys, you enlarge your phylacteries. So instead of this little box, now you have this giant box filled with the Bible. So that when you walked by, people would say, dang, did you see the size of his phylactery? His phylactery is huge. Giant phylactery. He must really love God. You do everything. This is what he says. They do everything to be seen by others. Everything. They love. What do they love? Do they love God? They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. That's what they love. And dear brothers and sisters, we ought not to minimize the power of pleasing people within our church. We ought not minimize that. We, we shouldn't say, well, we preach the gospel and we have the Bible, therefore we're free from the power of pleasing people. We ought not think that. It is easy to get caught in the same trap. It is easy to be motivated by the approval of other people. I mean, think about it just for one moment. Why did you come to church this morning? Why did you come? It's easy to say, well, if I'm not here, then people, someone's going to text me, or someone's going to, where were you? Or I feel bad about myself if I don't come. And I think, okay, well, that's, okay, whatever. That's, that's fine, whatever. But that's not the right heart. Imagine if every person in this room, imagine if we came here to worship God. What if we came here to worship the Lord Jesus? See, that's, that is the heart posture that God is looking for. That is what God wants to see in his people. It is so powerful. When you value people, you really value their opinion, and it's easy to live to make sure you have their approval. Have you seen this Travis Kelsey stat? Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, they're, allegedly they're together. And uh, this, I saw this. This popped up on the TV last week. With Taylor Swift in attendance, Travis Kelsey is getting 99 yards per game, left to his own devices. No, t- no Taylor Swift, 46, 46.5 yards a game. So he's, he's, getting, he's playing way better statistically when Taylor Swift is there. Like when she's there. Not there, he's not as good. And I think, why is that? Well, I don't know. But you can speculate. But it's, it's probably because she's there. And she wa- he, wants to put, he wants to strut around like he's big stuff. He wants to put on a good performance because he wants to impress Taylor Swift. This is why the Chiefs have offered Taylor Swift a contract to be a kicker so she can stand on the field next to him. It's not true. But we all know the power of pleasing other people. We all know that. But see, that's death. That's death. There's no life there. There's no life there. If we're going to be wise, we got to say, oh no, I'm not living for the approval of men. I won't live that way. I want to live to the glory of God. So how does this change happen? How do we go from loving the praise of men to loving the praise of God? How do you do that? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Here's the solution. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. The solution is you need a circumcised heart. No circumcised heart, all of your religion will be based on the approval of people. Circumcised heart, you live for the glory of God. Not perfectly, you aren't gonna be perfect, but your heart begins to say, no, 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 I actually love God. I'm gonna draw you a picture here. 
John Piper, he describes this, and I thought it was a very helpful description, and so because I'm an artist at heart, I said I'm going to draw it out. I'm going to draw it out here. I'm not really an artist, but here it is. So here's the picture. Here's God at the top. God, here's us at the bottom. Here's our heart. How do we know God? We need, how do we know God, who he is? Well, we need his word. But we don't have the spirit of God naturally. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of God in our life, we do not have the spirit of God. So if you want to go to the next slide, no spirit. So when you don't have the spirit of God and you want to know God and you have the Bible, what do you do? Option one, you build a ladder. You try to climb the ladder up to God. You turn the Bible, you say the Bible is about what I need to do to work my way to God. Or you run, you run away from God. And this is a problem where people either pretend to keep the law, they, they pretend to walk with God by climbing the ladder up to God, or we say, I don't want anything to do with the Lord. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just going to run away. Some of you, you were that way, open in your rebellion against God. So what's the solution? The solution is you need a circumcised heart. And I don't know how, I didn't know how to draw that, so this is my best uh, description here. There's a, so that's a circumcised heart. So you get a circumcised heart. Now, what happens when you have a circumcised heart? Uh, you get the Spirit of God, you become a Christian, and you stop running. So you, you're not running from God, and you're not trying to earn your way to God. You say, my, my salvation is a gift. It's not something that I've earned. It is a gift that you've given to me. Thank you, God. And why do you do this? Because God's Spirit is at work. He's writing, God's spirit writes his word on our hearts so that we care about God and his word, so that we care about knowing God. And then by faith, we obey him. So this is, we go up. We go up through the word of God. By faith, we obey him. By faith. John Piper says this, if you want to go to the quote. The spirit not only takes the law through our eyes into our hearts, it also takes us through the law into God. And that's the ultimate goal of the law, a personal relationship of love with the living God through his word. And I think we will never do this apart from his grace. We will never do this apart from his spirit. And this is what the Jews lacked. And this is what the gospel brings. It brings a new life. It, it, it brings a transformation of the soul where the old heart goes away. God removes it by his spirit and gives us his very own spirit that we might love God, that we might love his word, that we might love his purposes. And so, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who know the Lord this morning, I just want to encourage you to praise God for what he's done for you. Romans 2.29, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people but from God. Why? Because that person with the circumcised heart loves God and is living for the glory of God. And this is the type of people that we want to be. We want to be people who are dead serious about knowing God by faith and obedience to his word. Not earning salvation, not earning our position, but living for the glory of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you